Beloved, please uh, open your Bibles momentarily to Acts chapter 19. We are finishing up the letter from Paul to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. But what we want to do is we always want to make sure that we're good students of the word and occasionally want to place ourselves in the position of the original audience to make sure that we have as much of a full comprehension and understanding of what God was writing to us to be sure, but what God was writing immediately from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, we see God taking Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. It says it came about... That while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Now, we know from Scripture and we know from extra-biblical history that Ephesus was a very significant city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch of Syria. It was, Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, and it was a major trading center. Now, as such, this huge, thriving city was a very pagan culture. It was steeped in materialism, idolatry, sensuality. It was the headquarters of the pagan goddess Artemis fertility cult with the great temple of Diana or the great temple of Artemis. And the point here is that many of the Ephesian believers to whom Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing years later were saved out of that environment. A great many of them were very likely worshipers of Artemis before God rescued them and made them new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now, pick up in verse 9. From verses 2 through 8, Paul taught in the synagogues in Ephesus, and he had an initial acceptable response from the leaders there, but when he really started to get into their kitchen, they kicked him out, and he went and taught in the school of Tyrannus for two years. It says that in verse 8, but if you look at verse, actually, let's go to verse 11. It says this, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Uh, Pause there for a second. By way of reminder, this is still in the transition period. This is very similar to, for example, the time of Moses and Joshua and then Elisha and Elijah in the Old Testament where these were periods where there were signs and wonders and miracles and then especially at the time of Christ and the apostles, the same thing, where God had signs and wonders and miracles to let the people of God know that new message, new revelation was coming and to authenticate the message and the messenger and another component of those times especially at the time of Christ and the apostles is God in his sovereignty in a sense let loose the leash of Satan and his demons a little more than normal so there was a flurry of demonic activity that was centered around the promised land in the life and ministry of Christ and then even shortly thereafter while we're still in this transition period but we'll pick up the reading in verse 13 But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. This was a 15 to $20 million bonfire, which was a demonstration of repentance on the part of the people from their pagan ways. But beloved, the point here is this. When, and please go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. When we come to the passage we have before us. In Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 17, in the first four verses, 10 through 13, we see there this great summons to war that God gives for us, where we see God through the quill of the Apostle Paul letting us know that if we are saved, if we are an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God, we are in the army of God and we are engaged in this spiritual battle. And for us on this side, on 2,000 years from the completion of the canon of Scripture, very often it may be, well, what is really going on out there? We don't see the kind of visible manifestation at the level and the frequency that they did at the time of Christ and the apostles and even here in this transition period of Acts. But... It is very, very real. So even when we see the evil machinations of evil men in the world today, we understand there are evil spiritual forces behind them, which is what Paul brought out for us in verse 12, for example. And beloved, the Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, if God wasn't my friend, Satan wouldn't be my enemy. What he means by that is when we see these attacks coming, whether it's through the visible men or even understanding the invisible forces behind them, we should not be surprised by the attack. If anything, if there's a complete lack of attack, that should be more surprising to us. Also understand that this spiritual combat in which we are charged and called towards and equipped for Understand, this isn't some kind of afternoon athletic contest that we walk away from and forget about it two hours later. This is for keeps. And what we need for this spiritual war that God describes in verses 10 through 13 is a spiritual armor that is God-forged, God-furnished, God-made, God-supplied, and even God-worn as we would see from, for example, Isaiah 59, verse 17. Beloved, listen as I read. Our passage this morning are verses 15 and 16. But listen as I begin reading in verse 10 to pick up the stage here. And Finley is welcome to stay for the reading of the Word of God if, <laughs> if she wishes. We love babies here. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, 
Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, last week in verse 14, we saw the first two elements of armor, of this God-forged, God-furnished armor, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. In verses 15 and 16, we move to the third and fourth elements of armor, the shoes of readiness and the shield of faith. And even as we sang in that last song again, I think they had words something along the lines of, let us be a living sacrifice to you, Lord. Well, part of us being a living sacrifice that is a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God, is that we would be a living epistle of truth. We would be like a letter written by the truth of the word of God, not perfectly, but by the grace and mercy and by the might and power and enabling of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we would live in such a way as though we were a living epistle of the truth, of the gospel of peace and righteousness. We could say this when we look at these two verses. We could say, no shoes, no shield, no service. And I had to fit that in somewhere. (laughs) Beloved, let's look at the third piece of God-forged, God-furnished, and even God-worn armor, the shoes of readiness, here in verse 15. Now, two components that come out of this is stability and mobility. And the idea is God wants you and I to stand securely and move quickly. Uh, The first is the stability, the firmness and readiness. And the idea is wobbly Christians without a firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. Therefore, hence ergo, stand securely. That's why Paul says in verse 15 at the beginning, he says, and having shod your feet. So this is the third time with a third piece of armor we see that word having. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, now having shod your feet. Now all three of these havings, all three of these descriptions fall under the umbrella of the central command that he gave at the beginning of verse 14 when he said, stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, and then these three halvings, these three pieces of armor come from that. But what is he talking about by these shoes? Now, as we mentioned before, and I even alluded to here, we know that this is armor that was worn by the second member of the Trinity pictured even in Isaiah 59, verse 17. So, As a man that knows the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, what they had as the Bible at that time, Paul would understand that. But for the Ephesians, and even as Paul is writing this letter from prison, as a prison epistle being chained to a Roman soldier, he would understand the armor of a Roman soldier. And that is what he is talking about here. And the particular shoes that were part of the equipped armor of a Roman soldier is they were 
They were very rugged sandals. They had soles that were about three quarters of an inch thick of hard leather. And they had nails studded in them to give them good traction. Kind of like cleats that you'd wear in football or in baseball. And these sandals would be laced up halfway up the shin. In the winter when it was cold, they would stuff it with fur or something of that nature to give warmth. And these are the soldier's shoes. Now, Having said that, just at the high level, you can ask the question, when it comes to warfare, I mean, I, I get the sword, I get the shield, I get the breastplate, uh, you know, I, I get the belt that, that need, you know, I need to take up the uh, tunic and get it up so I can be mobile and able to move and to fight. But I mean, shoes, you know, how, how important are shoes? They are massively important. Uh, Julius Caesar, historians understand that one of the chief components of the great success of the Roman army was the proper footwear that Julius Caesar, Caesar gave to the soldiers to protect their feet. Uh, we might think in terms of minefields in modern warfare. They didn't have explosive mines back then, but they had something similar. They would take wood and they would basically sharpen it to a point and they would plant them out in the field so that armies would come and step on it and pierce their feet and basically take that soldier out of commission. So from a security and protection standpoint, it was massively important. And also one of the other elements of that was the ability and the tactic and the strategy for the army to be able to move quickly to a new front. And this is something, again, that they understand was part of the great contributing success of the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar, and, by the way, it goes back even prior to that with Alexander the Great, who had the same thing. Both Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great had proper footwear for their army as a major expenditure and area of importance. So it is very important. And we can think of the proverb, the fairly well-known proverb, for want of a nail. For want of a nail, and it's talking about the shoe of a horse, but it gives the same idea. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. So proper footwear is absolutely essential for warfare. And the Roman soldier that the Ephesian audience and Paul would have in mind could stand securely and move quickly with firmness, confidence, and assurance. Their shoes helped them grip the ground when they fought so that they could stand against the enemy unmoved. Again, flowing from that first command, stand firm at verse 14. But he says, having shod your feet with the preparation... Literally, having shod your feet in the readiness. The Greek word translated as preparation here in the New American Standard, it also appears when Paul was writing to Titus. In Titus 3 verse 1, you'll read there it says, remind them to be obedient, to be ready. Same word, to be ready, or same root for every good deed. Or the Apostle Peter, and again I keep coming back to this verse, but in 1 Peter 3 15, Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. Again, that same word, that same preparation, the same readiness, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. Or 
one more point that we can go to to help us understand the, the weight and the thrust behind God's exhortation to you and to me is in Psalm 89 verse 14. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint translators use this word to translate a Hebrew word which means foundation. So in Psalm 89 verse 14, speaking to God, the psalmist says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, are the preparation, are the readiness of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So beloved, back here in Ephesians 6 verse 14, what the apostle Paul is saying is that Christian sure-footedness, your sure-footedness, your stability, your security in the tranquility of your mind and the sanctity of your heart and the security of your heart in the gospel of peace that readies you, that firms you up to stand against the devil and his demons. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermon and in his commentary on this verse has these words to say about this dynamic. He said this, quote, nothing is more important in the Christian life than balance. You can't come into the Christian life and continue in it half-heartedly, half in, half out desiring benefits but objecting to duties, wanting privileges but rejecting responsibilities. You can't be slow. You can't be heavy-footed. There can't be any dragging of the feet. And he finishes, there's nothing so fatal to successful progress as a sluggish, lifeless Christian, end quote. So, beloved, what Paul says to you and me here is having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, of the gospel of good peace. The, the gospel, we know, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of accomplished truth, of the victory of Christ over disease, over death, over the grave, over sin. And this is something we, see, we saw earlier in Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 13, when Paul was laying the initial foundation of the words of encouragement and exhortation, the doctrinal foundation of the great work of the election of the Father and the redemption of the Son and the protection and preservation of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, he says, In him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that great doctrinal foundation that Paul laid earlier in the chapter, describing that those who were even deaf to the offer of the gospel have been given ears to hear. Those who are dead, we who are dead in our trespasses and sin, God has made alive. God speaks and awakens the dead through the gospel, through the gospel of peace. I mentioned before the 17th century Puritan William Gurnall, who wrote an almost 1,500-page devotion and commentary. Uh, Jim Williams at our men's breakfast yesterday came up to me afterwards, and he has the abridged three volumes of it. And he was, or actually, it was a Thursday morning at our Thursday morning men's Bible study. He was talking about how, how blessed he is by reading this. And I guess, so, he, so the title of the book is The Christian Complete Armor. Uh, he actually has a subtitle, and I guess if you're going to write a 1,500-page book on 11 verses, you 
I guess we'll have a kind of weighty subtitle. So this is the subtitle of the Christian in complete armor. And I'm glad you're all sitting down. This is what he says. The saints war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people and his policies, power, the seat of his empire, wickedness, and the chief design he has against the saints, colon, a magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapons together with the happy issue of the whole war. End subtitle. Now, in this book, Pastor Gurnall says this. He says, anything short of the pardoning mercy of the gospel of peace is as insignificant to a troubled conscience as a flower is in a dying man's hands. A, a, a flower may be a nice gesture to a dying man, but it will have no bearing whatsoever, has no power to deal with the disease, to deal with death. But the gospel of peace has to deal with the eternal and is able and powerful to deal with the eternal death, with the eternal disease. And beloved, what's amazing when we consider this in this mighty treatise of the Apostle Paul on the summons to war and the, the description of the sixfold elements of armor in the midst of this message of war, in the midst of this passage on war is this message of peace, this message of peace. And it's rooted in your identity in Christ and it's rooted in our unity in Christ. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Rome, had this in mind, for example, Romans 5, verse 1, when he said, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, part of what we understand from what Paul says in Romans, what we see here in Ephesians, is that peace with God opens up the door for you and I as new creatures in Christ Jesus to enjoy the peace of God. Again, our peace with God opens up the ability to enjoy the peace of God even on this side of glory, even on this side of eternity. And it is, again, rooted in your identity in Christ. It was early 16th century Germany. All the powers of Europe were assembled. Papal delegates, bishops, archbishops of the Catholic realms of Europe had assembled an imposing array of power gathered in a great cathedral against one man, Martin Luther, in a trial who was on trial for his life. And Luther prayed all night long and was asking God for strength, leading into this magisterial tribunal that was posed up and lifted up against him. And part of what he said in response was this. He said, unless someone, and this is, of course, coming after his theses, 95 theses of protest against the heretical views of the Roman Catholic Church that he nailed to the castle door at the church in Wittenberg. He said this, unless someone can show me from Holy Scripture the error of my thinking, I will not and cannot recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. Centuries before, the church father Athanasius, as he was defending the deity of Christ against Arian heresy and other heresies as well, was told by his friends, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. 
his reply was, then I guess I'm against the whole world. Beloved, the point is this. It was the gospel shoes of readiness, of the gospel of peace, that enabled Luther and Athanasius to stand firm. What will enable you, beloved, to stand firm against a church that is ever adrift? What will enable you and me to stand firm against a growing wave of opposition? Beloved, the Roman soldier had to keep those shoes on. He had to sleep in those shoes. He couldn't put the shoes on in the middle of the battle. As you can imagine, a sandal, a rugged sandal that goes up to mid-shin, lacing that up was not a trivial task. The point is here, you can't put your shoes on in the middle of the battle. If you're not prepared here this morning, you will be defeated tonight. So that's the stability of the shoes of readiness. There's also mobility. God God would have us understand that you and we are, you and I are to stand securely and to move quickly. Uh, We understand here when we're reading Ephesians in general and certainly in particular at this point as we're reading this spiritual battle in this armor of God that this is not a general call from the Apostle Paul to the general population of Ephesus to somehow behave themselves, to somehow have peace and goodwill among men and women in the city of Ephesus. This is a summons to the Salvation Army. Not the Salvation Army with Christmas hats and ringing the bell, but the Salvation Army, the soldier of the gospel of peace. And as mentioned before, the governing command is stand firm, therefore, in verse 14. So Paul is primarily talking about standing, not going. But when he talks about these shoes, and even in the backdrop of, as I mentioned before, of the success of the Roman Empire and a few centuries before of Alexander the Great's, This idea of moving quickly and going would certainly be part of it. Uh, Paul had this in his heart and mind when he wrote also to the church in Rome. In Romans 10, 15, he said, How shall they preach unless they are sent? Uh, Earlier, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? Verse 15, Romans 10, How shall they preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes from Isaiah, Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Beloved, the gospel of peace. Jesus Christ brings peace, and he is peace. The war is over. The battles go on, but the war, the conclusion has been reached. Reconciliation has arrived, and that is rooted for you personally in your identity in Christ, and it is rooted in our unity in Christ. That's why one of the, the second mention of the word gospel after chapter 1, verse 13, was back in chapter 3 here in Ephesians, verse 6, when Paul was revealing the mystery of Jew and Gentile together in one body. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God broke down the dividing wall of separation that was ordained by God between Jew and Gentile, and they are together in one body. So our shoes of readiness are strengthened by your identity in Christ and our unity in Christ, which look at chapter 2. Turn back just a couple pages. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 14. Four times we see the word peace once in verse 14, once in verse 15, twice in verse 17. Ephesians 2, verse 14. 
He himself is our peace, who made both, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And then verse 17, a quote, quoting from, again from Isaiah, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. To those who were near, that was the Jews. To those who were far away, that was the Gentiles. And in fact, let's go back to Isaiah just for a moment. We, I just mentioned that Paul there is quoting from Isaiah 59. We did the public reading, turned to Isaiah 40, where we did our public scripture reading this morning. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the accent, the emphasis of God is rebuking the nation of Israel for her sin. It's a chastening. But in the latter 27 chapters, in chapters 40 through 66, God through the prophet takes a shift and shifts from the emphasis on chastening to comfort. And you see that in, I won't read the entire chapter, excuse me, the entire verses we did before, but again in verse 1 of Isaiah 40, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. And then just go down to verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And what God is doing there is he's giving words of comfort first and foremost to Israel. The gospel came first to the Jews, came first to Israel. But even here, we begin to see there's kind of an opening. There's a light of proclamation even to those outside of Israel. Turn over to Isaiah 52 and look at verse 7. The prophet says, well-known verse, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Surely that is something that would be part of Paul's thinking as he's writing the letter to Ephesians. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news, brings gospel of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now turn to chapter 57. Look at verses 16 through 19. God says, Isaiah 57, verse 16, I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. So that's the bad news. But now look at the good news in verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, celebrating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And that's the exact verse that the Apostle Paul quoted back in Ephesians. Now, as you're flexing your fingers, turn to John chapter 4. 
In our Thursday morning men's Bible study, as we were going through John, we found ourselves this last Thursday in John chapter 4 when Christ ministered and reached out to a Samaritan woman by the well. Now, real quick, we understand from Ephesians, we understand even a kind of foreshadowing of that and a prophecy of that from Isaiah. We understand that there's Jew and Gentile. And we understand there was a tremendous hostility. There was a God-ordained wall of separation between the two from a ceremonial religious standpoint. But the nation of Israel, there was, there was sinful enmity and hostility between Jew and Gentile. Understand this. To a Jewish person then that wasn't thinking rightly, a Samaritan was worse than a Gentile. A Samaritan was a hated half-breed between Jewish people and Gentiles. And so when Christ, in his beginning part of his public ministry, reaches out to a Samaritan woman at the well, that was staggering, that was astonishing. And in verses uh, 20 and 21, uh, the woman, after Christ says, talked to her, reached out to her, talked to her about living water. She said in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Um, pause there for a second. Back in 1 Kings 12, verses 26 through 29, when the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom became the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom became the kingdom of Judah, Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, set up a high place. And again, 1 Kings 12, 26 through 29. And he centered the worship of this altar around a golden calf. So that's the backdrop to what this woman, this Samaritan woman is talking about. But look at what Christ says in verse 21 to her in response. He says, woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Uh, go down to verse 29. The woman goes back to her Samaritan city. And she says to the men of the city, verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And then finally look at verses 40 through 42. So when the Samaritans came to him, came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. And what they mean there is the Savior of not just Jews and Gentiles, but these are Samaritans who, again, were in a worse category even than a Gentile to the Jews. And Jesus is the Savior of the world, of Jew and Gentile and Samaritan, of young, middle-aged and older of the rich and the poor the educated and the uneducated so beloved back in ephesians 6 these are the shoes of readiness of the gospel stand securely move quickly and 
I love one of the blessings that uh, I had, just fantastic men's big breakfast yesterday with the message from David and uh, the teaching from Tim, or excuse me, the testimony from Tim. And one of the things that Tim said that was a great blessing was he talked about how blessed he has been by all the different testimonies from the men in these men's big breakfasts and the different unique circumstances and background and ways in which God brought them. And then I think it was a quote, something along the line of, however, they were dependably the same. The point here is this, is God will save different people in widely variegated manners, but there's one message, the message of man in his sin, God in his holiness, and Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice by which a sinful man or woman can come to Christ and be saved and be forgiven for their sin. That is the gospel shoes that we must put on. And by the way, beloved, the purpose of everything we do at Santan Bible Church, this worship service, the men's big breakfast, the women's refined ministry, even the wonderful annual chili cook-off, which uh, was fantastic, love that. Everything we do here is that men and women would have an encounter with the living God of the universe. That is the intent. So that's the shoes of readiness. The fourth element of the God-forged, God-furnished armor is the shield of faith in verse 16. And beloved, what we see in verse 16 is that the shield of faith protects the army of God and extinguishes the fire of the enemy. Now, right here at the beginning of verse 16, we'll see two points of demarcation. We'll see two things right at the beginning that tell us as we're going from the first three elements of the armor to the latter three elements of the armor, there's this kind of distinction that the Apostle Paul is making. He does this at the beginning by saying, in addition to all. So besides all these, besides these first three, now I'm coming into the latter three. But also, we'll see that after having seen the word having, three times with each of the elements, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now he says, taking up the shield of faith. And there's a little distinction in the grammar, but even in the English translation, you see a difference there. The the taking up here, there's kind of a more active, dynamic, continual dimension to it. And then, The fifth and sixth, he will actually give command, say, take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the Spirit. Now, we can also think of the physical imagery. The first three, the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes are fixed to the body. A soldier that is ready for war battle will not take them off. He won't take them off when he eats. He won't take them off when he sleeps. He won't even take them off when he relieves himself. He keeps them on. But the latter three, the shield, the helmet, and the sword are picked up and put down. But the soldier that is battle ready puts, them on, puts the first three on and keeps them on. But the shield, helmet, and sword, the battle ready soldier has them close at hand and picks them up when it's time to fight. Well, First, the shield of faith, beloved, protects the army of God, taking up the shield of faith. There were two different kinds of shields that even appear in the New Testament. There was a small circular shield, um, and that's not the shield that he talks about here. This isn't a circular shield made of vibranium. This is rather, sorry for the cultural reference, 
This is the large rectangular shield, about four and a half feet by two and a half feet, much larger. And the idea there was it covers every part of you. Nothing's left exposed. And it connects with the shields of your fellow soldiers. And what they would do to make these shields, they would take two big pieces of wood, again, about four and a half feet by two and a half feet. They would glue them together. Then they would cover them with a tough linen and then cover on top of that with tough leather. And they would do a couple layers of that. Then they would treat the leather with various oils to make the shields non-combustible. Because in war at that time, they would shoot arrows and spears that would be dipped in pitch and lit a fire. So that was part of what they were talking about with the shield. And coming back to what I mentioned before, in terms of the shields connecting together, the circular shield, that's just an individual shield for an individual man to fight. But these rectangular shields would be connected together. Uh, There was the Roman phalanx, which was basically parallel rows of shoulders soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder so that they're protected by their shield and the shield of the man next to them. And they would march. They would either stand if they're defending territory or they would march and there would just be row after row after row, wide, wide of this mighty terror-inducing sight of Roman soldiers banging on their shields to march in unison as part of their phalanx. And they would lock their shields together again for corporate defense. So the spiritual application of what God's communicating here is we have a battle. You have a battle to fight, but it's not mano a mano. You are in the army of the Lord. You are in the salvation army. In the same way as we looked at even last week, when one member of the body is attacked, it radiates out and the entire family of Christ is attacked. And it is a shield Notice it's not the shield of success. It's a shield of faith. God does not command you, beloved, to be successful. God commands you to be faithful. The shield of faith. And when we look at faith in Ephesians, when we look at faith in the entire Bible, biblical saving faith, the faith is never merely intellectual knowledge and even intellectual assent. It is always practical. It is always practical. And your shield of faith, beloved, is your God-given ability to quickly apply what you believe. James Montgomery Boyce, the late wonderful James Montgomery Boyce, identified the shield of faith as confidence in God. And your shield of faith connects you with the shields of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that there is a mutual strengthening, a mutual encouraging so that we stand stronger together. Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans united in the gospel of peace, upper class, middle class, and lower class together in Christ, black, white, and brown united in the one reconciled humanity. So, beloved, the shield of faith protects the army of God. Lastly, the shield of faith extinguishes the fires of the enemy. And to enter into this last portion of our passage, turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 11. Beautiful words from the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 34. The author says this. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, watch this at the beginning of verse 34, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Beloved, back in Ephesians 6, verse 16, God says to the apostle, the taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. The flaming missiles, some of your translations may say darts. Uh, The word can mean any kind of pointed missile trajectory or trajectory, whatever. (laughs) Thing shot out, thrown. But having said that, when we understand these are the flaming missiles of the evil one, it's better to understand this as arrows or spears or javelins than darts. As I mentioned before, they would take the arrows or even the spears, dip them in pitch, and light them on fire. And if the soldier, if the opposing army didn't have non-combustible shields, that would wreak havoc on them by lighting their shields on fire and everything else. But the shield stops them and extinguishes them. So what are the missiles of the evil one? Uh, It's the lies of the evil one. It's the accusations. He's the accuser. It's the slander of the evil one. And I think even more to the point of application that the Apostle Paul is bringing to the church in Ephesus and God brings to you and me, it's the temptations of the evil one. Selfishness, doubt, fear. Various lusts and greeds, disappointments, disobedience, malice, and the list goes on. And by the way, when we think of the shield of faith, and it might have been the first song we sang, but we talked about God being a shield. And it's amazing, we know that in the ministry and teaching of Jesus, there are a number of Jesus I am sayings. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. And in the Old Testament, there are many I am statements from God. Do you know what the first I am statement from God in recorded history is in the Bible? It's in Genesis 15, 1, where God is speaking to Abram, and he says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. That's the first I am statement in all of Scripture. I am a shield to you. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The Welsh retired pastor, Jeff Thomas, had these choice words of application to this truth, of this usage of this element of armor. He said this, quote, In the night, you're off guard and traveling alone in the twilight. The horrid assassin of your soul lies in ambush waiting for you. He never slumbers nor sleeps in his desire to destroy you. He's never weary. He never relents. He never abandons his quest for your destruction. He fires out of the darkness directly at you. He has tried to slay you a thousand times and failed because Christ is your shield and nothing gets through. He continues, 
When you're a little Christian child, he seeks to hurt you. He fires at you in the boldest of your teenage years. He fires at you during the strength of your manhood. He's merciless when he sees you in the tottering steps of old age. He seeks to tear you away from Christ on your deathbed. But nothing reaches you. Nothing can tear you from Christ. If you're behind this shield of Jesus, then you are safe for eternity. End quote. Beloved, you practically take up your shield of faith by trusting Jesus to protect you from the lies, from the accusations, from the slander, and again, most centrally, from the temptations of the evil one. John Newton, who was a horrid slave trader, and God saved him, radically saved him by God's amazing grace. And he wrote the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. He wrote many other hymns, one much far lesser known than Amazing Grace had these words from John Newton. He said this, though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the promise assures us the Lord will provide. Beloved, Put on the shoes of readiness. Have them ready at hand. Be firm and secure and stable in your position in Christ. And as God gives opportunities, none of us need to pray for opportunities tomorrow to share the good news. You and I will all have opportunities. Will we be obedient or will we be fearful? Put on and they'll put on. Take up and have at hand the shield of faith. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we praise you for your holiness. We praise you that you don't tolerate evil. Thank you, Lord, for giving us everything that we need to know about this spiritual war and about providing this beautiful armor that protects us, guides us, prepares us, and enables us and empowers us to be victorious in the battles. And in the end, we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that the war is won. We don't need to gain new ground for you. We need to protect and guard the territory of our heart from the evil one, from sinful thinking. May we be more and more righteous and holy people, loving one another and loving our neighbors and our co-workers and bringing the good news of the gospel of peace, gospel with you, which then produces gospel in, uh, peace in you and peace with one another. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.